Chapter 15 of Beyond These Voices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dylan Campbell. Beyond These Voices by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 15. Lord Oakhampton, discussing the financier's fate in a tete-a-tete dinner with his wife, was only one among a multitude who were thinking of the Pravana murder. There is nothing that English men and women enjoy more than the crime which they call a really good murder. They will import sensation cases from America or the colonies, and they will try to feel as keenly interested in a murder in New York or Melbourne as in a London tragedy. But the keen relish is lacking where the crime has been done afar off. It is impossible to realize the scene in unfamiliar surroundings. The sense of nearness of the street or the countryside we know is a strong factor in the interest of the story. To the man who knows his Paris thoroughly, a Parisian crime may appeal. But to the woman who buys frocks in the Rue de la Paix and hats on the Boulevard des Italiens, the most diabolical murder in the Marais or on the heights of Belleville seems tame. Thus, the murder of a millionaire in the midst of the rich man's London was a crime that set every sensation seeker theorizing and arguing. Every man is, at heart, a Sherlock Holmes, while every woman thinks herself a criminal investigator by instinct and the theories worked out and expounded over tea-tables, and maintained with a red-hot intensity, were various and startling. The most sanguinary murder is a poor thing if people know how and by whom it was done. Mystery is essential in a crime that is to occupy the mind of the public. The murder in the great house in Portland Place had all the elements of enduring success. Wealth, beauty, secrecy, and that Italian flavor which offered poignant possibilities of jealousy or revenge or perhaps a lifelong vendetta as the motive of the crime. The inquiry in the coroner's court drags slowly towards an indeterminate and unsatisfactory close, being adjourned at long intervals to give the police time to make discoveries. So far the police had made no discoveries, and the daily press was beginning to be angry with the criminal investigation department, and to make uncivil comparisons between the home article and the same thing in France and Germany. In the meantime, the newspapers found subject for occasional paragraphs, though they had no new facts to communicate. So long as the inquest went on, picturesque reporters found a spacious field for their pen in the descriptions of witnesses and spectators in the coroner's court, the spectators being mostly women of some fashion, and more or less famous in the world of art and letters. The stage also had been represented among that morbidly curious crowd, popular actresses coming to study the appearance and demeanor of the young widow, whose marble column in the witness box had been written and talked about. But in spite of searching and patient inquiry, the murder in Portland Place remained an insoluble mystery, a standing reproach against Scotland Yard. While the man in the street and the daily papers he battens upon were expatiating upon the supineness and incompetency of the criminal investigation department, the chief of that department was not idle. Scotland Yard is not greatly in favor of the offering of rewards for the apprehension of criminals. Scotland Yard has an idea that such offers do more harm than good and prefers to rely upon the intelligence of its officials and on that spontaneous and disinterested help which is often afforded by outsiders. But after the man in the street had expanded much wonder and indignation upon the fact that no reward had as yet been offered by the murdered man's widow or family, the Desprouse had taken upon themselves to arouse Vera to a proper sense of her position and responsibilities. Among Provana's friends and allies in the city, the great semi-oriental banking house of Messrs. Zeba and Zalmuna, with whom he had been closely associated, and other firms almost as distinguished, there was also a feeling that strong measures were required, and some wonderment that the widow had as yet done nothing. 
Lady Oakhampton, who had been in Portland Place nearly every day, although not always allowed to see her niece, took the matter in hand as spokeswoman for the Disbrows, and told Vera that she must offer a reward for the apprehension of her husband's murderer. It ought to have been done before now, she said, but you have been so lost in grief that I have been afraid to talk of poor Pravana. However, as time goes on, people must think it extraordinary that you can let things slide, especially after that splendid will which makes you the richest woman in London. The splendid will, executed in the first year of her marriage, left Vera residuary legatee after a long list of legacies, which, although generous, did not absorb more than a sixth of Mario Pravana's estate. If not actually the richest woman in London, a fact not easily to be ascertained, Vera was at least rich enough to support that reputation. She gave a little moan of anguish when her aunt spoke of the will, and replied with averted face that her uncle was to do whatever he thought right. Before darkness came down, the police stations of London exhibited bills, offering a thousand pounds for information leading to the discovery of the murderer, and the man in the street was a little easier in his mind. In the meantime, Scotland Yard was pursuing its own course, and one of the most experienced and intelligent members of the force had the Pravana affair in hand, and was actually established in Portland Place, where he was explained to the household as a picture restorer, who had been engaged by Mr. Pravana shortly before he left England to examine and restore certain pictures among those somewhat depressing examples of the early Italian school which gave gloom to the too spacious dining room. It might seem strange that work of this kind, ordered by the dead man, should be carried out at such a time, but Mr. James Jap of the Criminal Investigation Department had a power of impersonation which rarely failed him in the most critical circumstances, and having assumed the role of artistic man-of-all-work, he omitted no detail that could impress and convince the house-servants among whom he hoped to put his hand upon the murderer. Plausible, friendly, and altogether an acquisition in that low-spirited household, Mr. Jap, alias Johnson, was soon upon terms of cordial friendship with butler and housekeeper, while he was genially patronizing to the four stalwart footmen, and by no means standoffish to the coachman and his underlings, who sometimes crept into the servants' hall in the gloaming to talk over the last paragraph upon the mystery in Portland Place. For them, the mystery was meat and drink. They hung upon it with a morbid tenacity, never tired of restating the same facts and going over the same arguments and doing battle, each for his own solution of the ghastly problem. For these, Mr. Johnson, artist and picture restorer, was a godsend. The man was so delightfully innocent in the ways and workings of criminals. He showed the simple faith of a child when listening with avidity to Mr. Sedgwick's views and allowed himself to be browbeaten by the coachman. He would turn the drift of the talk aside at a most interesting point to relate his early aspirations as a student and his dismal failure as an artist, and how he had been driven from the painting of colossal historic pictures to the humbler art of the varnisher and restorer, working for a daily wage. He would tell stories of his early struggles that evolved laughter and good-natured scorn. He had a room allotted to him for his work, one of those rooms opening out of the long passage that led to Mr. Pravana's private door, that door by which he and his murderer must have entered the house on the fatal night. Mr. Johnson had examined the door with studious attention, confessing to a morbid interest in the details of crime, coexisting with the curious ignorance of the law of the land. The nature and methods of a coroner's court had to be explained to him condescendingly by Mr. Sedgwick when the Pravana murder was under discussion. He had his room for his artistic work, where he installed himself with three of the largest pictures from the dining room, his bottles of oil and varnish, and his stock of brushes, and where he insisted upon being undisturbed. He was of a nervous temperament, and could not bear to have his work looked at. He talked of his progress from day to day, expatiating upon the dangers of blue mold, the horrors of asphaltum, and other pernicious mediums, 
and the superiority of the old painters who ground their own colors. But no one, not even Mr. Sedgwick, was allowed to see him at work. He was altogether a superior person, yet it was something of surprise to the household that he should be admitted every evening to an interview with Mrs. Provana, who received him in the great lonely drawing-room where he remained with her for about a quarter of an hour, giving an account of his day's work. This privilege was explained by Mr. Johnson as a natural result of the lady's interest in art, and the value she set upon pictures which it appeared were especial favorites with her husband. At the rate he goes at, I don't fancy he could have much progress to report, remarked Mr. Sedgwick, for I don't believe he works a solid hour a day at those pictures. He takes things a bit too easily to my mind. He knows he's got a soft job, and he means to make it last as long as the missus will let him. He's got his head pretty well screwed on, has a friend Johnson, and he knows when he's in for a good thing and he's got a tongue that would talk over a special commissioner of income tax, so no doubt he makes Mrs. Provana believe that he works heaven's hard at fetching up the colour in the Fra Angelicas. I shall think something of his work if he can do anything to brighten up those Salvini roses, which are about the dismalest pictures I ever saw in a gentleman's dining room, the housekeeper remarked with conviction. Mr. Johnson was a desultory worker. He told his friends in the household that he worked like a tiger while he was at it, but your real artist was ever fitful in his toil. It was in the artistic temperament to be desultory. He would emerge from his den after an hour or so in a canvas apron so stained with oil and so sticky with varnish that none could doubt his industry. He was eminently sociable. He couldn't get on without company and conversation. The four young footmen afforded him inexhaustible amusement. The oldest of them ain't over twenty-five, he said, but every one of them is a character in his way. Now I love studying character. There's no book, no nor no illustrated magazine you can give me that I enjoy as I do human nature. Give me the human document, and leave your moldy old books for moldy old scholars. Every one of these four lads is a romance, if you know how to read them. This taste, which Mr. Sedgwick and Mrs. Manby thought low, led Mr. Johnson to consort in the friendliest way with the four youths in question. He had not been in the house a fortnight before he knew all about them. Their sweethearts, their ambitions, their taste for pleasure, and their craving for gain. Even the odd man, a creature whom the elite of the household esteemed as hardly human, a savage without a livery, by whom it was a hardship to be waited on at one's meals, was not without interest for Johnson. While he delighted in Mr. Sedgwick's company, and was proud to spend an evening with him at his club, he shocked everybody by taking the old man to a music hall and giving him supper after the entertainment. "'I think you're all too hot upon Andrew,' he said. "'I find him distinctly human.' With the ladies of the household, he was at once friendly and gallant. He aired his little stock of French with Mademoiselle and took her for evening walks in Regent's Park, which to dwellers north of Langham Place is the park. He bought her little gifts and took her to the theater. He played dummy whist with Mrs. Manby, who was sadly behind the age and could not abide bridge, and the result of all this friendly intercourse, which had kept the establishment in good spirits during a period of gloom, culminated one evening when he told Mrs. Provana that his residence under her roof had only a negative result and that he had exhausted all the means in his power without arriving at any clue to the murderer of her husband. "'It has been a great disappointment to me, madam,' said Mr. Jap, standing before Vera with his hat in his hand, serious and subdued in manner and bearing. The change from the sociable and trivial Johnson to the business-like and thoughtful Jap showed a remarkable power in the assumption of character. "'It has been a most disappointing case I have been engaged in for a long time.' I came into this house assured that I should put my hand upon the guilty party under this roof. Every circumstance indicated that the crime had been committed by someone inside the house. The idea of an outsider seemed incredible. That a house with such a staff of servants, 
with five men and an Irish terrier sleeping on the ground floor, could have been entered by a burglar seemed out of the question. Mr. Provana being known to keep large sums of money in one shape and another in the safe in his private room, and no doubt being also known to carry the keys of that safe upon his person, there was a sufficient inducement for robbery. While it is our common experience that any man bold enough to attempt robbery on a large scale is not the man to shrink from murder when his own skin is in danger. My theory is that one of your men's servants had been waiting for his opportunity during Mr. Provana's absence in America, that he had provided himself with implements for forcing the lock of the safe, perhaps with the aid of an outside accomplice, and that, by a strange coincidence, he had stumbled upon the night of his master's unexpected return and had been surprised at the beginning of his work. There are scratches on the polished steel about the lock of the safe that might be made by one of those graduated wedges which burglars use. I thought that, by being surprised by Mr. Provana's entrance, he snatched up one of the pistols from the case on the table, which he might have examined previously, and fired within narrow range as Mr. Provana was about to open the door of your room without having seen him, that he took the keys from Mr. Provana's pocket after he fell, unlocked the safe, and abstracted the two parcels of bonds which are missing. The disordered state of the safe and the keys left in the lock indicate that everything was done in extreme haste. This is my theory before I came into your house, madam. But after nearly five weeks' careful study of every individual under this roof, I have reluctantly arrived at the conclusion that nobody in your household is in it, either as principal or accomplice, before or after the fact. I think it is in an old play that the remark has been made that murder will out, also that blood will have blood. Both remarks are perfectly correct, but there is another remark that might have been made with even greater truth, and that is, money will out. You can't hide money. At least the average criminal can't. That's where he gives himself away. He can't keep his plunder to himself. The money burns. It burns. He must spend it. Some spend it on drink. Some, begging your pardon, madam, spend it on ladies. Some, the weakest of the lot, spend it on clothes and handsome cabs. But spend they must. There's not one of those four young men that could keep five or six thou in his pocket and not give himself away. Somehow or somewhere. Nor yet Mr. Sedgwick, fine gentleman and philosopher as he is, nor yet even the odd man. Being a poor creature, he'd have melted those securities with the first low fence he could hear of, and would have been on the drink night after night till he got the whores and gave himself up to the police. I've been looking for the money, madam, and finding no trace of that, I know I've not come within range of the party we want. We must look outside, madam, and we may have to look a long way off. If the possessor of those bonds is an old hand, he is not likely to turn them into money anywhere in this city, for though they are bonds to bearer, a transaction of that kind must leave some trace. I feel the humiliation of my failure, madam, and I have no doubt you are disappointed. Vera looked up at him with melancholy eyes, pale, hollow-cheeked, a somber figure in the severest mourning that the Maison de Doye near the Madeleine could supply, and French mourning knows no compromise. Disappointed, she repeated slowly in a low, tired voice. And then, to Mr. Japp's surprise and almost horror, she said, I don't think it much matters whether the wretched creature who killed him is discovered or not. It can make no difference to him lying at rest, beyond all pain and sorrow, that his murderer is hidden somewhere out of reach of the law, and may escape the agony of a shameful death. The horror in her widening eyes as she said these words showed that her imagination could realize the horror of the scaffold. However he may escape human law, she went on in the same slow, dull tones, he must carry his punishment with him to the grave. He can never know one peaceful hour. He can never know the comfort of a dreamless sleep. He will be a haunted man. Excuse me for differing with you, madam, 
but you don't know what stuff the criminal classes are made of. They don't mind. One more or less sent to kingdom come don't prey upon their nerves. Where are they found as a rule when they do get nicked? Why at a theatre, or in a music hall, or at the derby, and generally in ladies' society. The things you read of in novels, conscience, remorse, Banquo's ghost, don't trouble them. Mr. Jap apologized for having expressed himself so freely, and stood for a few minutes fingering the brim of his hat, waiting for Mrs. Provana to speak. Her speech just now had been a surprise to him, for never had he met with so silent a lady. Night after night she had listened hungrily to his statement of his day's progress, his suspicions, his glimpses of light, now seeming full of promise and anon delusive. She had listened with keen attention, but she had expressed no opinion and had asked no questions. And now for him, the accomplished criminal investigator, the man who had worked at the science of detection as superior persons work at the higher mathematics, to hear this lady say that the discovery of her husband's murderer did not matter, that, for her part, he might go about the world a free man, with nothing worse than a mind full of scorpions and a sleepless bed, seemed too monstrous for comprehension. She, to whom the murdered man had left millions, not to hunger for the ignominious death of his murderer? It must be Christian science, thought Mr. Jap as he packed his portmanteau. Nothing less can account for it. End of chapter 15 Recording by Dylan Campbell